This is an Equity Beats Media podcast. Here we go. Money conversations in early stages of relationships are difficult. I compromise all the time. We face harder choices. We got the house. No, my mother said, when you get older, I wish you'd hurry and get older so that you would settle down and marry a rich man. And I said, Mom, I am a rich man. Hello and welcome to Meet, Pay, Love, a podcast where we talk all about money and relationships and everything in between. My name is Zoe and I'm here with my sister Carmel. Hi, Carmel. Hi, Zoe. As always, we'd like to start off by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land in which we are recording and listening to this podcast today. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. So we are now in our fourth episode and we have covered everything from de facto relationship to financial red flags. And so today we are talking about financial agreements. Now, I don't have a huge understanding of what a financial agreement is. In my head, it's just like a prenup. The ones that we see in the movies where there's all these arguments around them. But Carmel, would you know what a financial agreement is? I do have a little bit from my time working in the court, but I do want to say from the outset that I don't think that they're very common. I don't think that many people in mid-20s to mid-30s would consider getting one. But we had some people from the community reach out and say they'd really love to hear an episode on financial agreements. And I think it's quite difficult to have a podcast on all things finance and money and relationships without addressing it. So we did do a little bit of research before we jumped into this topic. And according to CanStar, 6% of married couples in Australia currently have a prenuptial agreement. So that's only 6%. While over 91% admit that they don't have a prenup with their partner, a further 3% were unsure if they even had a legal document in place when it comes to finances or marriage, I guess. So a member from our community, James, reached out and here's a little bit of audio about his current situation. I am 32, currently residing in Melbourne and I've been in a relationship for four and a half years. I owned a property prior to being in a relationship in South Australia. It was really my first major investment. So I knew my partner when we were back in SA, it had came up that I owned the property. Um, So that was probably the first discussion, albeit nothing financial. It was just that I owned the property. My partner didn't own any assets uh, during the relationship, um, aside from her car. I've never thought about putting a financial agreement in place. We're both relatively easygoing people, relatively trusting and sensible people. So it was never something that kind of came up. Personally, from a relationship standpoint, I've never seen the need for that, but if I owned a number of assets, um, I would probably you know, start thinking about um, that. Thanks so much for sending that in, James. It's great to hear from someone in this position who has brought assets into a relationship. And I think it's really common to say, oh, we're both reasonable people. We're both on the same page at the moment. Well, the thing is, is that I find it funny that people are so against it. And I want to know what really is a prenup or a financial agreement, whether they're the same thing. And if you can have one when you're already married, like do you only have to sign one before you go into the relationship or can you do it at any stage? So to answer all of these questions, we're really excited to have on the show Clarissa Raywood. She's a family lawyer, wife and mum who is passionate about relationships, people and family. She is known in the legal community as the happy family lawyer, as she believes that your divorce can be something that you can look back on with pride. In 2013, Clarissa started writing her thoughts on 
how to have a happy divorce on a simple blog called The Happy Family Lawyer. What began as her weekly ramblings has fast become a popular resource center for families navigating the legal aspects of their divorce and separation who are seeking an amicable and dignified divorce, the kind of divorce they can look back on with some pride. We recently talked to Clarissa over Skype about financial agreements. What percentage of your clients would you say come to you seeking advice on financial agreements? It's actually really low. So of all of the types of work that I do, this would be a really small niche space. And so it's not something that I'm doing on a daily basis and really regularly. And I think that is because financial agreements or prenups, as they're often more commonly referred to as, they come with a whole lot of stigma. And it's interesting that you've asked me to talk about this topic today because I think it's a really powerful thing to talk about. Money is such a conflict driver in relationships and how we manage money and how we learn about money and how we deal with money can create such power imbalances and balances in relationships. And you see it play out in the work that I do all the time. Well, yeah, that's the thing. So I always thought of prenups as like the American movie prenup where you're like, it's outrageous to even ask me for that. And it wasn't until we started this podcast where I was really learning about what a financial agreement is. And so what would be your definition of what a financial agreement is? And is it the exact same as a prenup or are they kind of different things? A prenup is one form of of a financial agreement. And a financial agreement in simplicity is a contract, an agreement between two people on how they might manage their um, property, their assets, their finances in the event that their relationship ends. And we can do them prior to commencing a de facto relationship or or beginning a marriage. Uh, You can do them during a relationship. And you can also do them at the end or after separation. So they have a you know, a purpose at different stages in a relationship. The legislation's slightly different for each of those stages, but in a simplistic sense, they're a private contract between two adults about how they're going to manage their money. And when would you normally say that a person should consider getting a financial agreement, if at all? I don't think it's for me to say anyone should consider it, but I think it's it's helpful to think about um, a financial agreement as a tool that gives you some some certainty and they're they're a great planning tool. What I think is important and particularly for young people starting relationships, and I guess this is the now 40-something-year-old woman reflecting on her own life and maybe learning along the way, um, I think having conversations about money is a really difficult thing to do but a really important thing to do. And if you are in a situation where you might have some wealth, which we're seeing a lot now, we're seeing people that have, you know, had careers for 10 or 15 years before they're committing to a relationship or before they've found the person that they wish to commit to in a relationship. Um, And they've worked really hard to achieve those things. Where a financial agreement can be really helpful is it gives you a framework to talk about what would happen if our relationship ended with the things that I already have, with the things that you already have? How do we want to manage our money when we're together? How do we see that we're going to acquire assets? What might happen if one of us was to take time away from work to raise children? And these are really important conversations to have in any relationship, whether you're entering into a prenuptial agreement or not. Um, And they're often the conversations that we steer well away from because they're hard. You know, they bring up a whole lot of issues around values and beliefs that can be really hard to tackle but if you can tackle them your relationship will be in an immediately better place than if you don't and so at what stage in the relationship are people usually tackling this like is it can you do one after you're already married can you do one 
before you're even considering marriage? Like at what stage in the relationship? Both is the answer, Zoe, to that. So you could enter into a financial agreement uh, early in a relationship. And when I say early, it might be, you know, six months in or whatever it is for for that couple. Um, You could be married into your relationship and for whatever reason decide actually we'd like to put some structure around what may happen here. I do often see people entering into uh, financial agreements during relationships when things maybe are not looking the way they hoped. So there might be a moment where there's infidelity, there might be a moment where something's happened that's making the relationship feel shaky and part of entering into a financial agreement is almost resetting it and saying, well, let's talk about what would happen if this doesn't work so that we're on the same page about that and now we can actually work on our relationship because we're not fearful about what what a separation might mean for both of us. So they're, I guess in that sense, really helpful documents because you can use them at all sorts of different places and stages. So we're just going to take a break from Clarissa's interview right now to really hone into the fact that she's talking about communication being vital across all aspects and all phases of your relationship, which I think is something that has come up a lot in our interviews and it should feel like common sense, but... Not everyone has the best communication skills. So would you get a financial agreement? Um, I actually probably would if we sat down and spoke about it in depth and why they were getting it. I don't want to get it with like a malicious intent that we're going to break up. I don't want to go into a relationship thinking that there's going to be an end to it. But I do want to grow my own wealth my way and I want that financial independence. So it doesn't bother me getting a financial agreement. Yeah, see, I really wouldn't want to get one. And Pete and I don't have one. We did have a really open discussion about if we did break up, what would happen? And we have like a general mutual understanding that we would get the amounts that we put in at the start and then kind of just split the difference. But the thing is, things change so quickly. It's really impossible to predict the future I don't know if it's something that I would be into. Well, I mean, that's the thing. We don't know that much about financial agreements yet, so we might throw back to Clarissa now just so she can tell us a little bit more about them in this next part of the interview. One of the challenges that has arisen with financial agreements is that they have been used in circumstances to take advantage of more vulnerable people and those cases um, have at times found their ways into the courts. So let's say someone signs off on a prenuptial agreement in circumstances where they're in a very vulnerable position. They're often marrying someone who has a lot of wealth. Uh, A lot of the cases that have been decided recently in Australia have involved usually women coming from um, different countries and cultures. Short time frame before a wedding, being asked to sign a complicated document Often English is not their first language. Um, And in circumstances where you're in a country that's not your own, where your immigration status perhaps is connected to a wedding, um, where you're being promised all sorts of things, it's no surprise that they might sign an agreement. And then it's also no surprise that one or two or three or four years down the track when the relationship is not at all what they had thought, that they're seeking some legal advice about whether that document that they signed in that moment is actually binding. And so this is where the Family uh, Law Act kicks in and where the Family Court of Australia kicks in. And there'll be challenges around, is it binding or isn't it? And, you know, that's a really complicated process that I won't bore you with. But as a result, there's lots of case law at the moment around what does make for a binding and enforceable financial agreement versus what doesn't. And if I was to try and make that 
I guess, clear and simple, the things that will make it ultimately binding are common sense things. You can't expect someone to enter into a contract if from the outset that whole negotiation process is unfair. And things that would make it unfair would be things like not sharing with them the true extent of your financial circumstances not being honest in those conversations, not giving them time to think about the consequences of what they're entering into, not pondering all of the potential uncertainties of life. And hasn't this last 12 months really demonstrated to us all that life comes with so much uncertainty. And so when you're entering into a contract that may in fact affect your life 30 years down the track, you genuinely need time um, and the opportunity to speak with professionals like myself about, well, what if, what if this, what if that? And often when we're in the early stages of a relationship where, you know, sort of shocked on romance. So we say, oh, that won't happen. That won't happen. I don't have to worry about that. That won't happen. And my job, sadly, as an advisor is to say, well, what if it did? What's the impact of this document, this agreement that you're proposing in the event that that happened? Um, how does that affect you? And so that piece is really, really important. When people are entering into financial agreements, they'll often hear from lawyers, good lawyers, that the cost in doing one of these agreements will be thousands of dollars. And often I'll hear from people, well, I found one on Google. I don't understand why, Clarissa, you want to charge me thousands of dollars. I've got a template. Like, this is ridiculous. And the reason for the cost is because you want to ensure that the effort and energy that you're putting into this contract now is going to mean that it works for you in 10, 20, 30 years, because that's the intention. Most people don't enter prenups with a vision that they'll actually use it. Most people are doing it as a bit of a security blanket in the hope that their relationship survives the distance. But we have to think about what might happen in the event that it doesn't go as planned. What are some of the risks that you can see or the red flags that you would want younger people to look out for when they're being asked to enter into a financial agreement? Just information, I think, is then the second one. So ensuring, and particularly, I guess, if you're the person that perhaps doesn't have the same level of wealth as the other person, that you understand um, the financial information that's been given to you and that you're able to access and see supporting material that that gives you more context. And if you don't understand that, which most of us don't, you know, it's not until you encounter something that you actually turn your mind to it, then make sure you're engaging with, might be a financial advisor, might be an accountant, um, again, lawyers, to help you to understand what it is that you're being asked to sign and what the impact of that will be in the future. So I think more than anything, it's an education and knowledge piece for me that's the most important. And this is probably the case whether you're entering into a financial agreement or a prenup or not. You know, in an early stage of a relationship, having transparency around your circumstances is such an important thing when it comes to trust. Um, and so it's all connected for me. You're listening to Meet, Pay, Love with Zoe and Carmel. We're just going to take a quick break right now to hear this message from our sponsors. Then we'll come back to the rest of our interview with Clarissa. So you are back with Meet, Pay, Love and we're talking all about financial agreements and we've just heard about why they're not always legally binding, which is scary as hell to me. Well, yeah, because you want to get a financial well, agreement. Well, I never said I wanted one. I just said I wouldn't be opposed <laughs> to one. You yeah, gotta enter well, these conversations with an open mind, Carmel. I, I am open minded that I don't want to get a financial <laughs> agreement. <laughs> um, and so, when we interview these amazing people in the fields of finance and money and relationships, I really like to ask them the tough questions of how do you actually deal with this in your personal relationship? And Clarissa was very open with us about 
the conversations that she first had when she met her husband and how they discussed money at the early stages. Do you remember having these conversations with your partner at a, early on? or I'm trying to think. Yeah, so Ollie, my husband, and I have been married for 13 years now. Um, look, we've had very similar upbringings with very similar financial circumstances. We met when we were both in our late 20s. Um, I was a, a, a lawyer and he works in construction. And, yeah, I think we did probably have a pretty clear idea pretty early on on um, – you know, what we both had at that time. I helped him buy his first house. I remember that. That was very early in our relationship, sending him all these realestate.com notices, like buy a house, you goose. I'm very much a typical female lawyer, like get on with it. What are you doing? Um, so I, I honestly, Carmel, I couldn't say to you, I remember the moment where we sat down and said, right, let me share with you what I had. But I think I'm a pretty open book and um, it's not something that I was dancing around or hiding. And did you consider entering into a financial agreement at that time? Was that something that was on your mind? I guess in some ways, yes, but I really didn't own very much, yeah? So <laughs> I was so like, you were like a struggling young lawyer. <laughs> yeah, I was like, we're pretty even in this stakes. I'm not overly fussed. Um, <laughs> you know, but I guess it, it, I'm in a different stage of life now, yeah? So if something was to happen with my marriage and for whatever reason I was entering a new relationship, I would answer that question so differently now. Um, I own a business. I employ 13 people. I own a home. I have, you know, I have a very different financial structure than I had in my late 20s. And honestly, if I was entering into a new relationship now, I, I probably would um, enter into some form of agreement about my assets because I have two children and the whole consequences of something not working the way you hoped would be really different because of the stage of life that I'm at now. So we've discussed financial agreements. In the eyes of the law, are there any other ways that you can recommend people to protect themselves financially before heading into a relationship? Or is it mostly just the financial agreements and consent orders? I think that's, you know, in a pure legal sense, it is really just a financial agreement or a prenuptial agreement in that sense. Um, you know, you sometimes hear people talking about, oh, I'll put all of my money in a trust or I'll set up these clever ways of doing things. None of that will help you in the family law system. The family law system looks through everything. Um, there's no like magic way of hiding money. So none of that's going to help you. I think the best protection is um, what I spoke about before is honesty and transparency and, and really thinking about, you know, what are the consequences of this decision now in 20 years time? And if you don't know the answer exactly, as you said, Zoe, then speak to some people that can help you identify what the consequences might be. Is there anything you wish that you knew when you were younger or you want younger people in like this, maybe like the 2020s, 2021, forgot what year we're in, COVID, Ugh. anything that they should know before joining finances with their partners? This is like potentially a six-hour conversation, but what, what I would say, you really do need to think yourself about what you would expect of yourself and what you would expect of someone that you're in a relationship with. And I think you need to allow your head to go to worst case scenarios. Um, and the most common example I see floating around me is someone, you know, a couple form a relationship and then they have children and one person in the relationship steps back from their work to take on the role of caring or supporting or raising children and that has a whole lot of financial consequences. Um, it has consequences and often it's women that take on this role. It has consequences in terms of contributions to superannuation, for example, in terms of income, in terms of getting back into the workforce. And we live in a society that doesn't value those roles well. 
Um, and so I do think you should be having conversations with your partner around, well, what is life going to look like for us as best as we can ever protect it? But what are your expectations of me? If we were to have a family, what are your expectations? If I couldn't contribute, what are your expectations? If we had a sick child and one of us couldn't work, what would we do? And they're hard things to talk about in those sparks of romance moments, but they are very important things to think about and be able to at least have a conversation about. You may not have the answers because you haven't had to live it yet, but at least if you can have the conversation and if the answers you hear from your partner meet your expectations, and I think that is the basis of a successful relationship. Thank you so much, Clarissa, for your time and your expertise on financial agreements. For more about her, please visit thehappyfamilylawyer.com. So, Zoe, I'm interested to hear from you, given that you didn't really know much about this area before the interview, what has been your key learning? We think it's quite funny that people are trying to download these documents off Google, which are obviously quite complex legal documents, and claim that as like a financial agreement. Yeah, definitely avoid that. I feel like that would trigger you as a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, it, it is a trigger point. <laughs> it is a pressure point. <laughs> I, I think it's really important in this area, just like all areas of law, I suppose, but just get advice that's tailored to your situation. Please don't do a DIY. The thing that I find interesting, and it's very similar to the advice that we received from Satbeer in our first episode, which is that you can use financial agreements to be like a timestamp of these are all our assets, individual or combined depending on where you're at in the relationship and then you've got a document that details all of that which I think is really helpful it's just like Satbia said send a letter to your future self you attach all the documents and statements of your assets at the time that's the same thing with a financial agreement but the issue that I have with financial agreements just and the reason why I don't want to get one is because I think things just change so quickly and it's so complicated in terms of, you know, what if I have kids in the future? What if we sell our house? Things are just going to keep changing and I don't want to keep having to update it. I'm, I feel more comfortable knowing that Pete and I are generally on the same page about what we would do if we break up. Well, the other thing is, is that financial agreements are not always for just married couples. You can have them at any stage in your relationship, even if you're not intending to get married. It's not like prenups, which are really thought about just before a marriage. And so as we talk to Satbeer, you still have rights as a de facto couple, regardless of the fact you've got a financial agreement written up. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And the Family Law Act aims to protect people who are in de facto relationships. And we should say that there is a time and a place, I think, for prenups and financial agreements, just like Kim and Kanye. Yeah, well, apparently their prenup means that their divorce is going to be easy peasy. A walk in yeah. the park. Not compared to Kim and Chris Humphreys. No, and we're, we're just going off news articles for this. But what yeah, we've got no been... personal connection. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know them personally. But Kim, but... if you want to reach out, please. We'd love to have you on the podcast. <laughs> I would drop dead. Um, but <laughs> I think what's interesting about Kim and Kanye is exactly what you said, that they obviously would have spent a lot of time and money having lawyers look over their assets and accountants and all those kind of things to draw up a really solid agreement and now their their split is quite easy and amicable because they thought about that in advance. So maybe, and this is what Clarissa said too, maybe if you are coming in with significant assets, 
definitely have the conversation and maybe then consider writing up an agreement. Well, like a prenup or financial agreement is spending money on lawyers now so you don't have to spend an excess of money on lawyers later. True, but I think there is one flaw in what you're saying, which is still if one person in the relationship wants to have a fight, there will be a fight. And of course, this podcast, Meet, Pay, Love, is not intended to be legal advice or financial advice. And please, if you're thinking about getting a financial agreement or even if you're just entering a serious relationship and you want to be sure of your rights, seek your own independent legal advice because we don't know your situation. And that's it for this episode of Meet, Pay, Love. If you'd like to reach out to us, please feel free to do so at Carmel or Zoe at equitymates.com or by our Instagram page at meetpaylove. We'd also love to hear from you in a rate or review on the platform that you're currently listening to this podcast on. Thanks to all those who already have. We really appreciate all your feedback. If this is your first venture into the world of finance, please go check out our friends over at Equity Mates Podcast. They cover everything from getting started to investing to recommendations around what to invest in. And there's a whole lot of other podcasts that are currently covering a few more topics. Next week, we're going to be talking about contraception. We're going to be speaking to Emily Dang from 1-800-MY-OPTIONS. And here's a little something of what you can expect. There's been research that basically suggests that switching from something like the pill, that's a short-acting contraception, to a long-acting contraception would actually save women a few hundred dollars every year and for all Australian women over five years, something like $93 million. So that's a huge amount of money that women potentially don't need to be spending on things that might not be working that well for them. If this topic is something of interest to you, please feel free to reach out to us again with any questions or any stories you might have. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, laters. Thanks for listening. Bye. This podcast proudly brought to you by Equity Mates Media. Always remember, all information contained in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional, financial, legal or tax advice. The hosts of Equity Mates are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. For more information, head to our disclaimer page where you can find resources to search for a registered financial professional near you. Thank you.